Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the history of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 74 in Other News. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so where were we? Well, we've spent much of the last four episodes charting the ups and downs, or as I put it last time, the intricate vicissitudes of Russian court life and foreign diplomacy. And last time out, we'd reached the year 1753, with the Empress Elizabeth and her Grand Chancellor, Alexei Bestuzhev, no nearer, well, perhaps somewhat nearer, to securing an all-important heir for the Romanov dynasty via Crown Prince Peter and his wife Catherine, and with Russia somewhat on the sidelines when it came to European power politics and diplomatic affairs. And my mention just then of somewhat nearer reflects the fact that whilst Catherine has had two pregnancies, both had ended in a miscarriage, and no one was 100% certain as to who the father was or would have been, Peter or Sergei Soltikov. This week, probably much to everyone's relief, we'll be taking a break from the ceaseless round of court intrigue and instead we'll be looking at what else was going on in Russia during the Elizabethan age. What else, apart from pilgrimages, cross-dressing balls and controlling her dynasty's destiny, was Elizabeth up to? And what was going on away from St Petersburg and Moscow in the ever-expanding and increasingly vast Russian Empire. Well, quite a lot actually, and be warned, some of it, well, most of it actually, will necessitate a degree of backtracking to provide some background and context and to gently jog our memories. Before we get going, just a quick reminder that this podcast is supported by the kind and generous members of the Boyar Duma. 
If you want to join them to get ad-free content, members-only episodes, early access to general release episodes and written transcripts for the price of a cup of coffee a month, then you can by subscribing to The Boyarduma via Patreon, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And, as always, check the episode notes for details and links, if I remember to attach them, that is. Okay, if you're all ready and you're all sitting comfortably, let's crack on and do some history of Russia. And we'll start with a spot of palace building. Now, ever since the Palace of Versailles had taken shape during the mid to late 1600s, a number of European monarchs had taken their own steps to try and emulate or outdo Louis XIV's stunning architectural masterpiece, and the Tsars and Tsarinas of Russia were no different. Peter the Great, who, as with so much else, had been the pioneer of European-style Russian palace building, and those that followed him, would continue the trend, and one of their main points of focus would be the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. Now, I included a section on the Winter Palace back in episode 63, Persians, Plagues and Priorities, when the Empress Anna was on the Russian throne, and what I said then gave the impression that today's Winter Palace or Hermitage Museum was completed during her reign. Well, dear listeners, I'm sad to report that it wasn't. I don't often make mistakes, and I'm sure this won't be the last time I do, But anyway, worse things have happened at sea, so allow me to spend a little bit of time putting the record straight. Okay, so the first Winter Palace was a modest two-storey affair that was commissioned by Peter the Great in 1711 and built by the Swiss architect Domenico Trezzini. Well, it wasn't built just by him, but you get what I mean. The second Winter Palace came about because Peter the Great got fed up with the first one and in 1721 he commissioned the German architect Georg Matani to build him a new one. Peter's grandson, Peter II, had the second palace added to and renovated between 1728 and 1730, again by Trezzini, so that it was completely changed and unrecognisable from the original, and so it became, in effect, the Third Winter Palace. A little strange, I know, but I don't make the rules. The Empress Anna disliked the Third Winter Palace, and starting in 1732, she had the existing Apraxine Palace renovated and added to by the Italian architect Francesco Bartolomeo Rastrelli, and this became known as the Fourth Winter Palace. Still with me? Good, just checking. Between 1745 and 1755, Elizabeth, again using Rastrelli, completely renovated and enlarged the Fourth Winter Palace, and whilst further changes and additions would be made during the reigns of Catherine the Great, her son Paul, and her grandsons Alexander I and Nicholas I, it's Elizabeth's and not Anna's work that forms the core of today's Hermitage Museum complex. Starting in 1748, Elizabeth also built, again using Rastrelli's services, the Smolny Convent in St. Petersburg, which consisted of a cathedral and a complex of buildings. And she also commissioned the same architect, 
to make additions to the Peterhof Palace, also in St. Petersburg. During Anna's and Elizabeth's time on the Russian throne, Rastrelli was a busy man, and he constructed a number of other notable architectural works, including the Vorontsov Palace, the Stroganov Palace, a palace at Sarskoye Selo, the Anichkov Palace, all in and around St. Petersburg, and St. Andrew's Church in Kiev. However, when Catherine came to the throne, she refused to fund the completion of the Smolny, describing the Elizabethan or Russian Baroque style as old-fashioned and as whipped cream. And it was also made clear that Rastrelli's services were no longer required. But you can't keep a good architect down, and in 1763 he started building a palace in Kurland for the returning duke, who was none other than our old friend Ernst Johann von Biron. Whilst it's impossible to find the total cost for all of Elizabeth's building work, it's reckoned that the amount spent on the Sarskoye Salo Palace alone was an estimated 1.6 million rubles, which is around $270 million in today's money. So where was this money coming from? Well, again, it's hard to tell. Russia's economy in 1750 still operated at a very basic level. There was no paper money in circulation, no state central bank. In fact, there were very few banks at all. There was no real difference between crown and state expenditure, and the system was open to corruption on a grand scale. For example, it was said that Vice-Chancellor Vorontsov was always on sale to the first bidder. Taxation would have brought in most of the income, and during Elizabeth's reign, there would be numerous hikes and state-stroke royal-owned monopolies on basic items such as salt and alcohol. And the more lucrative trade in Siberian furs would have also contributed along with foreign loans and subsidies. And in many ways the economy can be viewed as being an indicator or a microcosm of the overall state of Russia during the 1750s. Because whilst the Age of Enlightenment, with its emphasis on scientific advancement, philosophy, education, the arts, religious toleration and personal liberty was in full swing throughout most of Europe. In Russia, it was all very much in its infancy. Peter the Great's reforms of the early 1700s had been understandably focused in the main on military and geop geopolitical matters. But since then, none of the subsequent rulers of Russia, Catherine I, Menshikov, Peter II, Anna Ivanovna and Anna Leopoldovna had taken any Enlightenment-based steps, and that was due mainly to the fact that their time in charge was either too short or was concentrated upon survival and maintaining the status quo. And Elizabeth, in many ways, was no different. The Empress could hardly be described as a forward-thinking intellectual, and yet throughout most of her reign, she would provide three fundamental elements that would allow the first green shoots of a Russian-style Enlightenment to take hold. Peace, stability and the end of court factionalism. And whilst Elizabeth may not have been a personal champion of the Enlightenment, she had abolished capital punishment and she listened to men who were intellectual and forward-thinking. And in particular, she listened to her new favourite, Ivan Shuvalov. 
Unlike nearly all of the men who were in and around Elizabeth's court, Ivan Shuvalov wasn't that ambitious and wasn't really that interested in advancing his own family's interests, much at times to the annoyance of his older cousins, Pyotr and Alexander. Instead, Ivan was determined to use his position and good fortune for the advancement of learning and the promotion of European fine arts. And in time, he would become the epitome of the enlightened courtier. He exchanged letters with the leading French thinkers Voltaire and Diderot, and with their help he produced and then published a multi-volume history of the Russian Empire under Peter the Great. Shuvalov then took an aspiring young poet, Mikhail Lomonosov, under his wing, and together in 1755 the two men gained the Empress's approval to set up Russia's first open-to-all university, the Moscow Imperial University. Now I've put an asterisk next to open-to-all, and I'll explain why a bit later. So Russia had two other seats of higher learning. Moscow's Slavic Greek Latin Academy, which had been set up during the reign of Fyodor III in 1687, primarily for theological purposes, and the St. Petersburg Academy of Sciences, which had been established in 1724 during Peter the Great's time. The St. Petersburg Academy was the forerunner of both the Russian Academy of Sciences and today's St. Petersburg University, and if you look on their official website, they claim it to be the oldest university in Russia. But it states the same thing on the official website of the Moscow or Lomonosov State University, which traces its roots back to the Moscow Imperial University. So who's right? Well, whilst each of the three aforementioned places of higher learning have a solid claim to be the oldest, I'm going to duck the issue and stick with my previous statement. Moscow Imperial was the first open-to-all university in Russia. And so despite her own personal indifference, Russia's own brand of the Enlightenment, the so-called despotic Enlightenment, was able to take a foothold. And during the reign of Catherine the Great, this foothold would be added to and expanded upon. And I'm not sure if you can add to or expand a foothold, but you know what I mean. OK, it's time to circle back and look at those asterisks that I've just mentioned. But before we do, let's take a quick commercial break. Don't go away. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, we're back. So, what about those asterisks? So, when the Moscow Imperial University opened its doors to everyone, and when Elizabeth's proclamation promising free basic education for all came into force, over 50% of a total population of around 38 million were excluded due to their position in the lowest strata of Russian society. Yes, dear listeners, it's time for one of our occasional forays into the system that legally bound in 1753 some 20 million men, women and children to their landowners, serfdom. Serfdom, which had been legally tied down back in 1649 and which had undergone several increasingly harsher iterations since that time, was still a miserable condition, akin to, but not quite, slavery. The serfs themselves weren't owned by the landowner. They just happened to be legally tied to the land that the landowner did own. And I'm not sure that sure there's much difference, actually, but salavé. And of course, the idea that serfs needed education of whatever type, basic or university, really hadn't or didn't cross anyone's mind. It was simply inconceivable. They were the invisible mass who worked the land and who, when they weren't doing that, acted as cannon fodder during those periods when the Russian state was at war. A typical mid-18th century serf and his family worked the land for their landowner in one of two ways or systems, Barshchina or Obrok. Barshchina was essentially unpaid labour, meaning that for a certain number of days per week, serfs were obliged to work for their landowners rather than for themselves. Obrok was where peasants worked when they wanted to, but they had to regularly give a portion of their harvest or a sum of money to their landowner. Either way, there was very little opportunity for the serfs to improve their lot, as neither Obrok or Barshchina provided enough land, or more importantly, enough free time for them to improve their lot, and so they spent their times living just on, or just below, the poverty line. In essence, they were running to stand still, and they were living their lives for the benefit of others. And even keeping up this miserable existence was precarious. If the crops failed for whatever reason, or the men were called up to serve in the Russian army, destitution and or famine would be just around the corner, which was why so many serfs escaped, if they could, either to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or the wild lands of southern Ukraine. And of course a lot depended on what type of landowner you had. Some were enlightened, took their responsibilities seriously, looked after their serfs well and provided for them when times were hard. On the flip side, however, there were landowners who treated their serfs abysmally. And probably the most infamous case which came to a head in 1762 involved a certain Daria Soltikova. Now, annoyingly, there were two Daria Soltikovas who were around at the same time. One was Daria Petrovna Soltikova. 
She was married to Ivan, the only son of Sergei Soltikov's brother Pyotr, and she had nothing to do with the crimes of her namesake, Daria Nikolaevna Soltikova, who had married into a different branch of the Soltikov family. And it was this second Daria who, over a period of several years, sadistically tortured and murdered at least 38 and maybe over a 100 of her serfs, mainly women and girls. In 1762, she was arrested, brought to trial, found guilty, publicly shamed and imprisoned for the remaining 40 years of her life in a dungeon beneath Moscow's Ivanovsky convent. Okay, so in conclusion then, for various reasons, the life of a serf could be precarious. But during the reigns of Anna Ivanovna and Elizabeth, for two main reasons, things would only get worse. Firstly, the rich landowners found a way around not being able to sell their serfs by using the process of gifting instead. And gifting simply meant that serfs could be exchanged with a nod and a wink between landowners for some kind of future unstated remuneration or favour. And then secondly, labour was needed for the growing number of factories and mines that were being set up thousands of kilometres away to the east in Siberia. Now, if you want a complete picture of Russia's expansion east and its settlement of Siberia, then the best way to do that would be to sign up to the members-only section and wend your way through the seven-episode mini-series on the history of Siberia. But if you don't want to or you haven't got the time, fair enough, I'll provide the briefest of outlines here. So Russia's eastward expansion can be charted back to the reigns of Ivan III in the late 1400s and his grandson Ivan IV, or the Terrible, in the mid-1500s with the conquests of the Khanates of Kazan and Astrakhan. From the 1560s onwards, various groups of entrepreneurs, the largest of which was headed up by the Stroganov family, along with a steady trickle of Cossacks, fur trappers and old believers, started slowly edging their way east to see what opportunities existed beyond the distant horizon. By 1580, the Khanate of Sibir had been conquered, and in the decades that followed, more European Russians made their way slowly and inexorably eastwards. By 1619, they'd reached the Yenisei River. By 1631, the Lena River. And by 1639, the Pacific Ocean. And by 1644, the Amur River. And then during the 1650s and 1660s, exploration of the Trans-Baikal region took place, followed by the exploration of Russia's Far East. And so by around 1690, the vast majority of Siberia's indigenous natives had been subjugated, with only Chukotka and Kamchatka in the extreme northeast remaining in native hands. Russia governed these vast new territories from just two main settlements, Tobolsk in the west and Yakutsk in the east, and apart from a small number of scattered outposts and forts, everything else was an immense wilderness of forest, taiga and tundra. In the 1720s and 1730s, various scientific expeditions took place, and it was during one of these that the new American territory, Alaska, was first sighted in 1742. Also in 1742, the imperial government sent a Russian military expedition to conquer the Chukchi and Koryak peoples 
who inhabited the far northeast. However, in March 1747, a group of around 500 Chukchi warriors attacked a Russian stockade at Anadiesk and killed a large number of Russian troops, including their commander and Major Dmitry Pavlutsky. By 1750, after three years of incessant but ineffective skirmishing, it had become clear that the Chukchi in particular would be difficult to conquer, and so Elizabeth decided to cut her losses and negotiate peace treaties with both groups. Okay, great, but, I hear you asking, how did any of this impact the serfs? Well, in the early 1700s, the first private and state-owned factories and mines in western Siberia had been set up. However, by the time we get to Anna Ivanovna's reign in the 1730s, they were struggling to operate at anything like their full capacity due to their inability to attract enough workers. The initial answer to this was to be the mass deportation of serfs from European Russia. Landowners in the West were incentivized, i.e. paid, to provide the state and private sectors with the manpower that they required. The serfs, of course, had no choice in the matter, and this practice would continue under Elizabeth's time in charge. However, for one main reason, the numbers making their way east would steadily increase. Now we know that one of Elizabeth's main claims to fame was that during her reign there would be no executions in Russia. And whilst that was true, and many also saw her time in power as ushering in a kind of Russian-flavoured enlightenment, which, as we've seen, it kind of had, the simple truth is that instead of execution, thousands of criminals and miscreants, the majority of whom were serfs, whose crimes in most instances were minor or negligible, were packed off in their droves down the Vladimirka or the Vladimir Road to Siberia. And it's on that sombre note, dear listeners and patrons, where we leave things for this week. Next time we'll be back to the main story proper and we'll be covering the period from 1754 to 1756, years that would witness the eventual end of the struggle to secure the Romanov dynasty and the beginning of the next pan-European stroke pan-global conflict, the Seven Years' War. So until then, dear listeners and of course patrons, look after yourselves, keep your heads down and your chins up, and of course, and as always, stay safe. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.